This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The New Statesman. This episode was recorded on Thursday the 11th of January, prior to the UK-US strikes on Yemen. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Haywood, our political correspondent. We've been digging around in our virtual mailbag and have brought a few questions of yours to discuss. So, Rachel, you've got the first question. This question comes from Lizzie, who says, are the actions of the Israeli government that the British state is supporting really in the British national interest? Great question. I mean, I would I would take the view that you know, the British national interest as self-defined at the moment is to, you know, suffer as little from the consequences of foreign uh, ruptures around the world as possible, because you can see that in the crackdown on asylum seekers and refugees, um, and also on the fact that aid spending hasn't gone up to the 0.7% um, commitment. So, you know, supporting a foreign war like this probably means that you are going to get refugees mostly who who flee to the countries around, in this case, Gaza. But many do try and come to Western Europe as well. And that's been the whole narrative, I think, of, of our government uh, in the last few months, how they want to try and stop that happening, people turning up on our shores. I mean, you saw at the height of the refugee crisis in, in the sort of mid-2010s, like 2015, the, the refugees who, who were um, uh, displaced were from three countries mainly, um, Syria, Afghanistan and Somalia, where there were where, where there were conflicts. Freddie, you went to watch David Cameron answer questions about this at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and he, he got grilled on this, didn't he? Yes, yeah, so this was his first appearance in front of MPs uh, since he became Foreign Secretary. Remember when he was appointed, there was some concern that he wouldn't be held to account by uh, elected politicians because he was a member of the Lords and people said... Uh, well, okay, well, the, the good thing at least is that he goes in front of the Select Committee. So it was quite a big moment. Um, and I think what we have seen since he became foreign secretary is actually the British government adopt a slightly more critical tone of Israel. Um, he got to remember that, that David Cameron was has described Gaza as a as a prison camp back back when he was 
uh, prime minister. He's also described uh, the Israeli actions in the past as disproportionate. So I think what he said uh, went along with that. Uh, he was very critical of uh, what was called uh, collateral damage in the, in yeah. the in the session. He has said that they've called on the uh, Israeli government to try and kill fewer uh, civilians. But I think it's it's interesting in terms of the British interest. I mean, immediately we got to look at the fact there are still. Uh, two British nationals being held hostage by Hamas. So that's an immediate priority. And I also think that given the government's call for a sustainable ceasefire, they also are looking for stability. Uh, and that's that's the key thing. I mean, I think that's what Cameron is uh, constantly lead talking about. He's also called for Israel to reopen water supplies in northern Gaza. So I, I do think there was a series of criticisms that came out. And you, you are right, he did uh, the MPs did take a while to sort of extract these answers from him because, you know, we know David Cameron, he's this sort of consummate uh, politician. He can sort of slide past yeah. uh, questions like no one else can. Uh, but once he did answer them, I think he was quite critical. I think there's probably also a question about geopolitics and stability going forward. Um, the Israeli government, much as it has been criticised and, and rightly so by governments across the world, is the only real democracy in the region. And for decades, the reason countries like the UK and the US have uh, supported Israel is because of that and the wider instability in the region. And it kind of does all go back to the fact that there was a ceasefire before October the 7th. And then there was one of the worst terror attacks probably in, in sort of modern history. And looking at Britain's national interest going forward, it is also in Britain's interest and the interest of Western democracies not to have a Hamas-run Gaza in the future going forward because that is unsustainable. And so the, the tension, I think, for the UK is how you can support a democracy, support a country that is uh, trying to defend itself when it is also acting disproportionately and there is a wider humanitarian crisis and that's something that uh, all Western governments are sort of grappling with but just turning it to the British national interest it's a, it's a, it's a wider question about mm. stability and geopolitics and democracy and, and also like things like trade routes, because we've seen the impact of the conflict in Gaza spill out over into the Red Sea, Yemen, uh, issues with how Saudi Arabia is going to respond, issues of how Lebanon is going to respond. It's a sort of tinderbox situation. It's probably in Britain's national interest to try and prevent that from escalating as much as possible. Yeah, they they want, they've obviously, the, the UK Navy and the US Navy have um, attacked drones that are sent by the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea because they're so concerned about, you know, inflationary pressures, whatever might come from the fact that that, sh that really important global shipping lane might close. But there was another interesting thing about um, Britain's ability to act on these concerns uh, that Cameron said. I mean, there was one question from Alicia Kearns, the chair of the Foreign Select Committee, when she said, has the UK government in any way been able to restrain Israeli airstrikes um, in, in Gaza? And Cameron almost just said, I hope they listen to us. There was sort of a, a recognition that his ability to constrain uh, those actions of the IDF is, is minimal, actually. And I think that's... Uh, a broader point as well. I mean, some people point to the fact that 
Cameron's introduced a travel ban on um, violent Israeli settlers uh, back in December, I think it was. But even that, I mean, that came a week after the US Secretary Blinken had introduced similar measures. So again, we've got that pattern of the UK following where the US goes. So I do think we have to be realistic about the UK's ability abroad uh, to implement its own concerns. Mm, That's why I think in terms of national, national interest, really, the focus is probably more on just sort of what you can do to limit the fallout of this domestically. And that's where I think the British government has failed um, because of the way, because of the attitudes to the um, sort of protests. Remember all of that Suella Bravman um, stuff around Armistice Day and the um, pro-Palestinian march, you know, stirring up tensions really from the top of government. I know she's gone now, but um, it was something that Rishi Sunak and other ministers basically, um, you know, agreed with at the time. Um, And then you've also got sort of like some politicking around the anti-boycott, the anti-BDS bill that they kind of rushed back into the Commons to try and, well, some believe to try and exploit the tensions um, within the Labour Party on their Gaza stance. And that's something that Tory MPs have actually warned could could ignite community tensions if councils are stopped from from sort of um, banning investments from uh, certain countries. Obviously, the idea of the bill is to is to stop um, uh, those boycotts of Israeli goods. Um, and so I do think that, that that they have failed in terms of the national interest, uh, in terms of sort of peace on British streets, if you like, um, away from the kind of broader geopolitical questions. Yeah, the protest issue turned into a sort of proxy row for mm. all kinds of other domestic tensions that actually have nothing really to do with Israel and Gaza. And it was to do with Silla Braverman trying to uh, make a particular point when it looked like her tenure as Home Secretary was increasingly precarious. It was about trying to draw dividing lines with Labour, the Conservatives still trying to uh, draw a link between Keir Starmer's leadership of Labour and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of mm-hmm. Labour because they know that Jeremy Corbyn was really good for them in 2019 uh, and, and trying to draw that link. And for about, the far right, it was just about immigration. Yeah, for the far right, it was just about yeah. it was about immigration. It was all tied up with Armistice Day and poppies and our obsession, I guess, with the First and Second World Wars and, and patriotism. And it wasn't actually about what was going on in Gaza at all. And I think um, the... Certainly, I felt quite uncomfortable at how those protests were exploited to make a wider political point that I don't think was really relevant. After the break, it's Freddie's turn to ask a question. Freddie, can you give us a clue? We're going to investigate whether millennials have forgiven the Lib Dems. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. 
satellite towns, suburban areas, which, you know, may have voted Tory and now are shifting towards Lib Dem. And that's because, you know, partly because younger families from more urban areas are moving out because mm-hmm. of the costs of living in places like London and Brighton and the wherever Surrey you want to say. Yes, exactly, the Surrey Shufflers. Um, and they're taking their politics with them. And rather than voting Labour, which might be a, va- a wasted vote in some of yeah. these areas, they're tactically voting Lib Dem. I don't think that necessarily counts as a f- forgiveness of the Lib Dems. I think it's more of a political calculation. I think the bigger shift in these places is actually Tory switches to Lib Dems. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to cover Bracknell Forest, which is in Berkshire, um, during the, the, the local elections last year. And there was that effect happening in Bracknell Newtown with the sort of Labour voters coming in from London and moving into new housing there and, you know, bringing their voting patterns with them. But I thought more significantly in that area, which has a lot of affluent places like Sandhurst, you know, where there are lots of ex-army officers and things. I, door after door, when I was going around um, sort of on the campaign trail, you, you, you met Tory voters, lifelong Tory voters who were really disillusioned and saying they were going to vote Lib Dem this time. And I think that's probably a more significant shift in, um, in a sort of attitude towards the Lib Dems than among that, those younger, more Labour-leaning millennial groups. But Rachel, I think you've dug out some polling on well, this. Well, I've got YouGov's figures for um, like broken down by age and the um, millennial cohort, 25 to 49, puts them out. I mean, it sort of depends how you define millennial. But uh, that's yeah. got Lib Dem voting intention um, at 10%, which is kind of pretty... Pretty standard. That's, yes. that's the sort of standard average, isn't yeah, it? So, yeah. So um, I don't think it's the case that uh, this group love the Lib Dems, but it's also not the case that this group, having felt betrayed by the coalition, are like the worst people of the Lib Dems. I will never vote for, for, for the mm-hmm. Lib Dems. Yeah. Um, and I think there are probably two things going on. One of them is the issue that when young people move out and want more space, they're going to end up in Tory areas, which is something that the Conservatives are really worried about. Mm-hmm. And there is going to be a, uh, a tactical voting element to this election. We always talk about elections, like how big is a tactical voting bit going to be? But from the by-elections that we've seen over the last year, mm-hmm. I think there is a trend of people just voting for whoever is most likely to get the Tories out yeah. in that seat. But the other thing is... Um, and and. Maybe this is a personal thing because I am like peak millennial mm-hmm. and I was uh, 19 in the 2010 election and the tuition fees betrayal was was huge. That was like the number one political issue that the student population were really exercised about, even though it didn't affect us because we were already students. But like mm-hmm. that was the kind of core, everything about politics felt like it came down to that because that was our entire universe. You're Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the same for me. Um, I was editing our student paper at the, at the time of the 2010 election and our headline of that issue was, um, we're all Lib Dems now. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was so excited about voting for the Lib Dems and, you know, literally months later we were on, like, tuition fees protests. But I don't know about you, Anoush, but um, I, I, I am now 13 years older. You'll probably stay the same age. <laughs> um, but the politics that are relevant to your day-to-day life at... 33 are not the same as the politics that no. are relevant to day-to-day life at 19. And if you think about like that as a life stage, yeah, it's very true. people in their late 20s, early to mid-30s, what's really exercising them? Housing costs, 
childcare, the cost of living crisis, the fact that public services are crumbling, the same things that uh, really are key voter priorities for everyone. So the state of the NHS, the state of the economy, the fact that like this one thing, student tuition fees, that was our entire political world when we were students. It's not that they've forgiven the Lib Dems for it, but it doesn't have that core kind of single issue resonance. And that's before you get into Partygate, Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. the chaos, Liz Truss, like all of the other things that we know have had an impact on how people want to vote. So I don't think it's a case of millennials wholesale going, you know, Nick Clegg, you said sorry. Oh, can we have a clip of that? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry. It's not a case of, you know, we've forgiven them. It's a case of our politics are a bit more wide ranging now that that's not the one thing that we judge a party by. Mm. Thanks so much for bringing those questions, guys. And thanks everyone who submitted one. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send one, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.